Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I am Dr. Mary Marion, and I am an associate editor for the journal Nutrition and Clinical Practice, fondly known as NCP. Today, we will be discussing the topic of cancer cachexia, cause, diagnosis, and treatment, which is now available online, but will be published in the October issue of NCP. Joining me today for this discussion on this topic is Dr. Todd Maddox. Todd is a critical care and nutrition support pharmacy specialist at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida. Thank you for joining me today for this discussion, Todd. Before we start our conversation, I'd like to ask you if you have any disclosures on this topic that you would like to share. Actually, I have no disclosures specific to this topic, but I have done consultant work and am a speaker for uh, Fresenius Cabby. And thank you for the opportunity to participate in this today. Well, I think you'll have a lot of great info to share with our listeners since you're in the trenches of working with oncology patients. So let me start off with my first question about this topic. I think many clinicians who work with oncology patients wonder if the patient is developing cancer cachexia when they see a steady decline in their weight. So can you tell us more about what the definition of cancer cachexia is and how we might identify if a patient is developing cancer cachexia or not? Sure. So as many of our listeners probably know, cancer cachexia, it's a term that's been used to describe a collection of nutritional and metabolic abnormalities that result in a weight loss for really no apparent reason. The abnormalities are currently thought to be directly related to tumor-induced inflammation, but the cytokine contribution to these abnormalities is not clear. And some of the metabolic abnormalities that we're referring to that have been reported include like increased resting energy expenditure, increased lipolysis, abnormal skeletal muscle, protein degradation, and also um, altered hypothalamic metabolism that negatively affects appetite. And these are all areas that have been targeted for studies for uh, some of the pharmacologic agents that we'll talk about later. Unfortunately, this can be sort of a moving target because there have been several publications over the past several years that have documented the poor correlation between tumor-associated metabolic abnormalities, weight loss, tumor type, and stage of disease. So sometimes it is very difficult to identify on a patient-by-patient basis who really does have this cancer cachexia syndrome. Part of the reason for the disparities in these reports, though, is the disparities in the diagnostic criteria that have been used to identify cancer cachexia. In general, most of these include some threshold for weight loss, or a decline in body mass index. The good thing is there's been a move on an international level to develop a consensus or a framework. And it's actually based on the idea that cancer cachexia is characterized by an ongoing loss of skeletal muscle mass with or without loss of fat mass. And this framework includes specific diagnostic criteria for uh, thresholds for weight loss, changes in muscle mass, reductions in food intake, and alterations in metabolism. I know in our our own practice at Moffitt, I don't think this specific type of standardized approach has been developed. I think we still use general patient assessments, screening, those sorts of things to try to 
identify what is truly cachexia and what is lack of oral intake. So since this is a complex area of practice in the oncology population, what do you think is a practical approach for treating cancer cachexia? Well, unfortunately, there really are no consistent guidelines or standards of care for treatment. There are, however, multiple recommendations from a variety of sources. And in general, the process should start early with nutrition screening for prevention and nutrition counseling. And while it's not real clear that these interventions, especially the nutritional counseling, really have a meaningful effect on nutritional areas like weight gain or energy intake, I think many patients have dietary concerns, especially before and after treatment. And there does appear to be a beneficial effect on other areas, such as quality of life. Next is to identify any problems that may be caused by nutrition impact symptoms, some of the easily identifiable reasons why people may not be able to eat sufficient amounts like nausea and vomiting or pain, and then attempt to successfully treat them to hopefully improve patient's oral intake and, and obviously quality of life. Patients who have a total inability to eat sufficient amounts or have intestinal failure, that's another group of patients, and they actually may be considered as potential candidates for enteral tube feed or even parental nutrition. But especially within the context of oncology patients, that's a, a decision that has to be made carefully in view of the patient's current clinical situation. That's where applying standard guidelines for initially initiating those therapies is important because, in general, these modalities just aren't useful for patients with advanced cancer anorexia and cachexia. So for those patients who, you know, we've determined actually have cancer cachexia, there have been multiple approaches that have been to treat the symptoms of anorexia, unintentional weight loss, and overall malnutrition because a single cause for these unfortunate problems really hasn't been identified. So there have been a variety of nutrients and medications that have been studied in attempt to favorably alter appetite or counter some of the suspected metabolic abnormalities that cause inefficient nutrients and how that manifests clinically is weight loss and apparent changes in patient's appearance. More recently, there have been physical therapy or mild exercise program recommendations for those patients who have performance status that will accommodate such a program. Yeah, and I think what you just said just highlights how complicated this can be for the clinician. And in my role as a dietitian, obviously, I try to augment oral intake as much as possible with different nutritional strategies. But also, sometimes I think about talking with the physician about the role of pharmacological agents. So we know that inflammation can be an underlying driving force here. And can you share with our listeners a little bit about what you would recommend regarding the role of pharmacological agents in modulating the inflammation related to the cancer and how this might improve intake and prevent loss of lean body mass. And also, in your article, you had a nice description of a study that combined the use of a number of agents that had good success in promoting increased weight, increased muscle mass. So what are your thoughts on the use of pharmacological agents? 
So because there's not really a good treatment for cancer cachexia, because there are multiple abnormalities that have been reported, and by the way, I think it's important to remember, you know, these, these metabolic abnormalities that have been reported, many of them, especially when it gets to the inflammatory data, have been in in vitro and experimental models, not a lot of human data. So there have been a variety of pharmacologic agents that have looked to try to target some of these uh, metabolic pathways. Unfortunately, the most clinically useful and available agents, there's only about four classes. There are the progesterone analogs, the cannabinoids, corticosteroids, and then, of course, the omega-3 fatty acids. These are all readily available for use and have actually been fairly well studied, uh, with the exception of a couple of them. The most studied agent out of the class of the progesterone agents is progesterol acetate. There have been multiple investigations that have reported a beneficial effect on appetite, a usually small effect on weight gain, even though many of the studies, obviously they were statistically significant, not sure how clinically significant some of these changes are, and improved quality of life. Magestral acetate is generally well tolerated. It does have some concerning adverse effects, including development of adrenal insufficiency, especially with long-term use at high doses, and also an increased rate of venous thrombolic episodes, DVTs. Another group that has been well studied is the corticosteroids, and dexamethasone is the agent that's been most frequently studied out of this class. Improved appetite and quality of life has been reported. With these studies, though, it looks like there's a fairly short effect on appetite. What's been reported is less than four weeks. This particular class does have some serious adverse effects associated with long-term use, like glucose intolerance, immunosuppressant, and muscle wasting. The less well-studied pharmacologic class is the cannabinoids. The agent in this class is dronabinol. It hasn't been as well studied as the other agents, but it does have an FDA indication for age-related anorexia associated with weight loss. It hasn't performed as well in studies in cancer patients, though. As a matter of fact, what few studies have been reported, magestral acetate has actually performed better in terms of uh, quality of life, effects on appetite, and weight. The other concerning thing about use of this agent, it may not be best for some patients because of the central adverse effects like dizziness, confusion, no feeling of high, but it may be a suitable alternative for patients who have a history of DVT where you wouldn't want to be using magestral acetate. The last class, again, that's readily available are the omega-3 fatty acids, and they're investigated for their role as an anti-inflammatory type effect. But again, the clinical data has not been overwhelmingly positive for effect on weight or length body mass or quality of life. The two things that fish oil has going for it is it's readily available and it has a very low adverse effect profile. So it is an attractive intervention. And actually, if you look at the Aspen recommendations as well as the Espen recommendations, they include a recommendation for using fish oil in patients who have uh, suspected cancer cachexia-associated weight loss. 
do you think if someone is trying megase or medestral acetate and it doesn't seem to be working really effectively, would you discontinue that or would you maybe add fish oils to that picture to see if you get some more benefit? In practice, and that's where there's not good data with multiple agents. The one study that you're talking about, I believe that may have been a pilot study for a larger study where there were multiple agents used. And I think it's probably a reasonable trial to see. If you look at data, the effect of the magistral acetate, I think, tends to have a better documented effect on appetite stimulation than what uh, fish oil has been reported. It would seem reasonable to give a trial of using both agents. And quite honestly, in our patient population, I'm seeing, I work primarily inpatient. So I see, you know, the patient's medication profiles after they're admitted. And it's clear that omega-3 fatty acids or fish oil been prescribed for many of our patients. And it's not uncommon to see them come in again, with their medication profile, not necessarily continued as an inpatient, but where they have been taking both fish oil and, you know, one of the other agents, either magistral or uh, dronabinol. The concern that I have whenever I see, you know, these investigations that are using multiple entities, one is we're already dealing with a patient population that does tend to have nutrition impact symptoms, uh, that affect their oral intake, like nausea, vomiting. They tend to have early satiety. So how much how much more do you want to ask of your patients to take on top of their already prescribed medication from a nutrition point standpoint? When you look at these studies, these are nutrients and usually non-prescription medications that are being prescribed too, so that means they're not going to be covered by insurance. So then there's an added concern about the expense of the regimen. Yeah, I think that's a really good point since when you talk about taking the appetite stimulant, then you add the fish oils, and then if you added carnitine and you added a couple other things, that's really challenging for a lot of people to do. Mm-hmm. So to conclude with, what are your pearls of wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners about this topic, what should we be doing as clinicians regarding cancer cachexia? Well, what I see in our, and again, this is primarily inpatient, and we do actually have therapy that gets initiated as inpatients that continues as an outpatient. And I think what's important to remember is there seems to be many times an overwhelming expectation of use of these agents that with, you know, a patient is prescribed the magistral acetate and the expectation is that the 10%, 10 pounds of weight that they lost is going to come back. And I'm not sure that that's a fair thing to tell patients either because when you look at data, that's just not what happens on the average. You know, when you look at, the, again, you look at data that you have your bell-shaped curve, you have your outliers that actually did gain some meaningful weight, but many, many patients don't gain meaningful weight. It may be a reasonable goal just to maintain patients' weight at the time that you start the 
other, from a cost standpoint, it would seem reasonable to start with the lowest dose that's recommended for these agents. And you know, over time, titrate up if they're not responding. In general, the lower doses will be less expensive, certainly from a progesterol acetate standpoint. I've routinely recommended that we start with 400 milligrams a day instead of 800 milligrams a day, simply because that's half of the cost. And based on that, what period of time would you wait before you go, okay, the lower dose really isn't working, we should bump it up to the higher dose? How much time should we allow if there's going to be any benefits provided? That's a good question, and there's not really good data for that. There's also not good data for how long to continue. I think in practice, what I get a sense from our clinicians is, you know, given about a week to two weeks to evaluate patients at the earliest, and then if there's been no response, you know, alter the plan, whether that means increasing the dose or switching to another agent. Yeah, that's what I see as well. So I think that's good advice. Well, thanks, Todd, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. And I invite our readers to find out more about this topic and other nutrition support topics related to oncology in this October's issue of Nutrition in Clinical Practice. And this concludes our podcast. Thank you.